Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, I know. You're telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great conversations. In Season 6, our Disease Films series had adaptations like The Omega Man, based on I Am Legend, The Andromeda Strain, Children of Men, and Blindness. I Am Legend is so much better than The Omega Man. What about the Will Smith version? Don't get me started. For our This Is Real Life Jack series, we talked Black Hawk Down and Seabiscuit. Some great true stories based on fantastic books. And we had more listeners' choices like The Fly, The Emigrants, and Scott Pilgrim versus the World. You just did a series on The Fly on the Sitting in the Dark podcast. Did you read the original material? Wasn't watching every Fly movie enough? <laughs> Our Big Betty Davis series featured adaptations like The Little Foxes, Now Voyager, All About Eve, and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Are you calling Betty Davis big? Only in personality and force. She is a force to be reckoned with. We talked about the entire The Godfather trilogy, of course. Iconic page to screen, even if it is just the one Mario Puzo book. I wonder if Coppola will ever make the Sicilian. We also had some Zhang Yimou adaptations with Judo and Raise the Red Lantern. Absolutely gorgeous movies. And don't forget the Hughes Brothers series with From Hell, based on the graphic novel. Brilliant material. Kelly Reichardt gave us Wendy and Lucy and Certain Women, adapted from short stories. Plus more Hayao Miyazaki as we tackled Howl's Moving Castle. Find all these books and more at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the show. Get the full list of adapted films that we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals and start your next read today. Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. 
Hey, everybody. And we spoil movies tonight on the show, continuing our glimpse into cinematic reality with our new series, That's Real Life, Jack, with Ridley Scott's 2001 film, Black Hawk Down. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app or join us on YouTube. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you jump into action when your mother Irene comes in the room, then you're ready to gear up for The Next Reel's Instagram hashtag PonyPrize hashtag Guess the Movie Challenge. And since Games Master Stephen Smart is still off on his own secret mission, I'll fill you in this week. The movie was Robert Zemeckis' 2000 film, What Lies Beneath, starring Michelle Pfeiffer and Harrison Ford. Congrats this week to first-timer at AQS Morning View, who figured it out on Image 2. We love getting that new blood in here. You're entered to win the Pony Prize. Congrats. And we have a blot spot. Andy, uh, I have to tell you, my heart was reasonably broken. It hurt a little bit. A little bit, yeah. Ben said, I thought The Dish was a reasonably charming film. It made me chuckle a few times and certainly featured some funny characters. I just didn't feel like there was a whole lot that actually happens in the film, so it felt very slight. Clearly, even the screenwriter saw this as if they had to invent the power outage dilemma. It was fine, but not remarkable in any way. Your rank 64, my rank 90. Okay, so 90 still feels like more than fine, but that smarts. Reasonably charming? Yeah, yeah. Slight. Yeah, it hurts. It does hurt. I might have to tell our new friend Sam Neill that Ben has words. Luckily, we we can balance out uh, Ben's reasonably uh, uh, charming review with Nick Langdon and his reasonably enthusiastic review, wouldn't you say? Nick said it was a really enjoyable and rewatchable movie that he is very glad that we covered. He did, I thought it was interesting, he highlighted the aspect of Patrick Warburton. He said he's a wonderfully understated performance and that his character, Al Burnett, seemed totally believable as a NASA guy, ruler straight and professional. One thing that bothers him about films uh, like The Martian is that everybody's really good looking. And here you have a guy who feels like he actually fits in with the stock footage, which I thought uh, I, kudos to the team at uh, Working Dog. They did a great job. And Patrick Warburton, of course. So thank you both, uh, uh, Nick Langdon and uh, Ben Lott, as usual, for uh, writing in and sharing your thoughts, balancing out the universe on The Dish. And now it's time, Andy. Let's do trailers. <laughs> All right, Andy, I'm going to go first. You have a thing about choosing teasers uh, that I don't share. We have our first teaser of a movie that I know you're excited about. I think my thing about teasers is that I feel like if we've talked about a teaser, then we shouldn't talk about the trailer. <laughs> and I know that probably is wrong, but uh, and I'm sure it's going to be wrong in this particular case. I yeah, think we're I... both excited enough where we'll both <laughs> nix whatever fake rule I made up. Tra- trailer two, trailer three, I'll talk about them all. <laughs> It's John Wick 2. No, I'm sorry. It's John Wick Chapter 2. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I like how they're doing that. I don't know I I don't know what it what it means, but I like it. I don't get it. Uh there's not much of a story description here. I'm just going to read it and you can guess what it's about. The continuing adventures of former hitman John Wick. And you know what's so special about that, Andy? What? I don't care. I don't care anymore. <laughs> that is enough. That is enough for me. It's John Wick. I think he's got a dog uh, in the thing. Uh, based on some of the production stills, he's got his dog, and he's got a lot of guns, and he's taking on the universe of bad guys, and it looks exactly like what I loved about John Wick, the first one, but more of it and more purple lights. 
It's uh, directed, again, by Chad Stahelski, who directed the first John Wick. Chad Stahelski, you know, is, of course, a stuntman and has 71 credits uh, to his name in stunts. Uh, And he's done a lot of stunts and coordinated stunts and he's coordinated fights. These are the only two movies that he's directed. And my goodness, he is channeling all of his stunt cred into these movies. So I am incredibly excited about uh, about Chad Stahelski's uh, uh, role as director of John Wick 2. I just can't wait. Derek Kolstad is back as writer. Uh, he did uh, John Wick 1, obviously. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm in, man. I'm in. It looks like he probably met Keanu Reeves on the set of Point Break because he was Keanu Reeves' stunt double. Chad Stahelski. Yes. That's fan- that's that is interesting. Yeah. So 25 yes. years of all the things you have said tonight, that's the most interesting one so far. Let's see if you, you've set the bar. Let's see how you do. He also did the stunts on Orgasmo. <laughs> Huh? You didn't. Huh? Almost? You didn't. Almost. You didn't. You didn't cross the bar, but you almost. <laughs> not quite. Not quite. <laughs> uh, no, I'm just as excited as you are. Uh, I loved the first John Wick. I thought it was such a refreshing, fun film. And this, uh, I, I didn't need much in the in the teaser to get me excited. I mean, really, they could have shown me anything, and it would have gotten me going as long as it looked like the first one, and it did. And I can't wait. So that's where I am. It's got a great cast, and it's going to be just a, a blast to watch this one when it gets released. I, it does have a great cast. Uh, of course, Keanu Reeves, uh, Ruby Rose, Ian McShane, John Leguizamo, Bridget Moynihan, Peter Stormare, Lawrence Fishburne, Lance Reddick. Yay, Lance Reddick. Uh, David Patrick Kelly, Common. Common. It's a great cast. Uh, it hits the U.S. February 10th. Looks like it starts its global domination rollout on February 9th in Argentina and uh, hits Slovakia February 23rd. Or February 23rd. Uh, and so it's opening pretty much around the world um, between then, the 9th and the 23rd. So, uh, you know, Fandango those tickets, people. John Wick is calling. Do you think they're going to go back to the first one and rename it? John Wick Chapter One: A New Hope. <laughs> I'm just curious. Like now that now that they've started this thing, are they yeah. going to continue it? So I don't know. I guess we'll see. I guess it is we'll not. See. It is not currently listed like that on uh, on IMDb. So they have not done that yet. What's yours? What's your trailer of frustration? My <laughs> my trailer of frustration. This is going to be really interesting. It, I don't know if it really counts on our list of trailers because it's obviously going to be quite different. This is a uh, brand new trailer that just came out for Invisible, which is the first scripted series for VR. Now, I have had some issue watching VR. I really enjoy the stuff that comes out of VR. You know, the virtual reality where you wear the play, you know, with the Google goggles in front of you, or, or whatever it may be, whatever sort of device you have, little Google cardboard, Oculus, PlayStation Oculus, VR. It's all coming all that around. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's some. There's a lot of great apps you can play around with and really just kind of see a you know really interesting things. Sometimes. Um, I have not been impressed with any of the narrative uh, bits that I've seen thus far on uh, on VR. It's a, it's a tricky way to tell a story, um, you know, because if you're if you're wanting an audience to follow a story, it's really hard to do that if they start looking around at things that are not in the frame in which you are really wanting them to focus. 
And so, you know, I've really struggled with that. And this certainly looks like it's going to kind of so far feels a little bit the same. Like you can look 360 degrees, but sometimes I'm like, well, I'm not sure why you're having me look 360 degrees here. It's interesting that I'm at the bottom of a, uh, a, a, a hole in the ground getting buried, but what is the benefit of watching this in 360 degrees? I'm not Turn sure. Turn around and look at the dirt. That's right. Look at exactly. the dirt. <laughs> and it especially gets tricky when you have to look in a certain direction to make sure that you don't miss text that comes up on the screen. So I'm really curious to see how virtual reality as a narrative storytelling device is going to grow. The fact that this is actually a, you know, an opportunity to do a scripted series VR um, really excites me because mostly Doug Lyman, who we really like, uh, he did Board Identity, Edge of Tomorrow, which was one of my favorites. Uh, he is behind this, along with Oscar-nominated screenwriter Melissa Wallach, who did uh, Dallas Buyers Club. So I'm curious to see what these guys are doing. If nothing else, it might fail, but at least they're finding ways to move the narrative storytelling through VR in a direction that could potentially make sense one of these days. So that is what gets me excited about this. Um, just a little quick snippet. This story is about a family. Uh, you're focusing on the family, the Ashlands, a rich and powerful New York family coping with its patriarch's death. Despite their wealth, the Ashlands lurk in society's shadows. And for good reason, some family members have the power to become invisible. However, one rather brutal genetic research lab is about to uncover exactly what gives certain Ashlands their ability. So that's kind of a, the story. It's going to be a scripted series. It's going to be VR. And it's going to be released uh, through um, Sony VR, right? No, Samsung VR. Samsung VR. Yes. So that's right. don't. So don't keep it close to your face. <laughs> yes. That's really. This is not a good time to do. That. Maybe you should look at it through a different device. Don't I'm just just saying. Yes. But so so yeah, I'm I'm curious to see uh, what happens with this. What did you think? Well, I I am definitely mixed on VR. I I'm I'm mostly bearish, and, and for a couple of reasons. First of all, I I'm one of those people that gets kind of dizzy when it comes to to VR, and my experience with it hasn't been positive. Um, you know, but as you say, I haven't seen a scripted show. I have watched a couple of concerts uh, through that uh, through VR, and they bring up two points. One, uh, it's incredibly frustrating to uh, or distracting to my mind to want to look at the audience that's dancing around me and behind me and not focus on the talent that's on the stage. Uh, so I'm thinking about that as an audience member. Then as a filmmaker, I'm thinking, what a pain it must be to now have to think of everything that was formerly hidden by the frame, you know? Now you actually have to be cognizant of what's behind you uh, because you never know when people are going to turn around and look behind you. And, and so there's great opportunity there, but I think it just leads to more distraction, and, and that's super frustrating. Now, I'm with you. I like that they're experimenting with it, uh, and and I like that that's happening. I think it's a really limited uh, kind of uh, window, audience window, Samsung VR. Uh, it, it's, you know, of people who are interested in watching narrative uh, series uh, in a VR experience, I think it's probably pretty small, and that's, that's um, you know, uh, that's sad, but it's it's growing. So, you know... Here's, here's hoping they get something out of it. I'm just bearish on it right now. I'm, I'm not ready. 
Yeah, I, I feel the way uh, you do. I think it's going to be, um, it's going to, I feel like it's going to have to move almost like in a choose your own adventure sort of direction uh, in order for VR to really make sense in a 360 degree storytelling where you can take your story in multiple directions by, you know, you look in a certain direction and it registers that you're looking in a certain direction for a certain period of time, choosing to go in that particular direction, like through a particular door. Once you go there, you're in a different story. And like, I feel like there's a way to do it. I just don't feel they're there yet. Yeah. Still, Doug Lyman, I'm glad that he's really kind of working to push the bounds a little bit. I, you know, I do too. I, I just think that there is a there is a natural limiting factor in in VR that is not the same as as other technology like 3D, right? Where um, I, I think you probably have more people who feel the sort of sickness that comes with VR, VR sickness, uh, that then you do the people who say they get sick on 3D. And, and the, as, you know, as much as I'm excited about them taking on the narrative thing, it, it's a real sign to me at how frustrating and limited that audience is going to be when I can't even watch the trailer in a normal way. You know, like it, there are technical limitations just to watch the trailer on the web. So uh, it just, yeah, you know, I'm just, yeah. <laughs> No, I hear you. Bearish. When does it? Uh, when are they going to release it? Right now, it's still listed as coming soon. It was just uh, the trailer was just released a few days ago, so I don't know if I have a date yet. I've been poking around, but haven't found anything yet. Soon. Soon. All right. Well, Andy, we just lost the initiative. You shouldn't have come here. This is our war, not yours. Three hundred thousand dead and counting. That's not a war, Mr. Ito. It's genocide. These people, they have no food. We can either help, or we can sit back and watch a country destroy itself on CNN. Rangers, Deltas, today we go. Man, Blackburn. Date of birth, 227-75. I was trained to fight. You trained to fight, son? I was trained to make a difference. So guess what? You're going out today. What? That's what you wanted, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. Remember when everybody else was shooting, shooting the same direction. Black Hawk Down, Andy, 2001. This is a drama history war story uh, that uh, is directed by the good Ridley Scott, written by Ken Nolan, uh, who wrote the screenplay based on the work, the book, and initial draft of the stream screenplay uh, by Mark Bowden. Uh, stars Josh Hartnett, Ewan McGregor, Tom Sizemore, and everyone else. Pretty much. This is the story of the elite soldiers that uh, were dropped into Somalia to capture uh, lieutenants of the Idid uh, regime. And uh, it's the story of these two helicopters that go down and the attempts to rescue them and the tragedy that ensues uh, as a result. How did it hit you? This book I read when it came out, and I was just unduly impressed with it. It really put me right there in the action. I really um, uh, I loved the way that Mark Bowden told the story. It really felt real time. And, uh, you know, I, I just feel like it's it's one of these books that everybody should read, like the same way I feel about the film. I think it's it's such an, an, an interesting glimpse into this really intense, small uh, military initiative and how people get through it. And I, I find it incredibly important uh, to look at the, the book and the film. Um, I, it's an incredibly powerful story. It's a, it's a very tough story. 
um, because it's it's real war. I mean, this is what it is. And uh, it's difficult. There are losses, um, even if there is a successful um, result coming out of the the mission itself. Um, but then it also it, it does a, a, a careful dance around the politics involved. And I think they do a really smart job with this film and just making it very just non-political. It's just a story about this mission. You get in, you get out, and that's the film. And I don't think they need to jump into the politics. I think people um, are able to kind of uh, take out of it what they're going to put into it. And I think that's a really interesting way to do a film. Um, I it's a, it's a tough film to watch. It's not something that I watch regularly, but I do find it incredibly important and uh, very powerful, and it's definitely up at the top of my list. I, uh, I, I, it had been many years since I uh, had last watched the film, and I hadn't read the book, and I haven't finished the book, but I've been reading it this week um, to, to try and get a sense for it. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, I found myself kind of awash in emotion as, as I'm watching this movie, you know, and I, I think you're right. I think it's non-political, um, but I, I also think in its own way, it, it wears a little bit of its emotional resonance right on its sleeve. And, and we can talk a little bit about that at the end of the film. There's a, uh, there's there's definitely a sense of uh, of kind of reminding us uh, maybe too blatantly of the the, um, the you know why we serve kind of a message which which I found a little bit grating, uh, but generally I think the film uh, does an admirable job of capturing an incredibly painful story uh, in a place that we largely misunderstand. Uh, and, um, and, and it's, it, I was worried that it was going to be over dramatized, that it's in the hands of, of, a, a producer in Jerry Bruckheimer that is, uh, adept at taking, uh, at, at making action, uh, you know, overtly, wildly, overtly patriotic. And I was really surprised at just how delicate, um, you know, even in the face of this massive, uh, sort of surge of, American kind of testosterone and force, uh, it, it still ended up being a rather delicate approach to patriotism. Like you're left conflicted. I was left conflicted watching this movie. Uh, and, and that ends up being a very, very powerful uh, experience for me. I don't know if it would have ended up that way if uh, Simon West ended up directing it. He was the one who was originally wanting to direct it and brought it to Bruckheimer's attention. I don't think it would have ended up the way it was uh, in that case. I think that if Bruckheimer went to somebody like Michael Bay, um, who did Pearl Harbor with him, um, it certainly wouldn't have ended up that way. It would have been exactly kind of that patriotic mess that uh, that you were just describing, the sort of yeah. stuff that uh, Bruckheimer is known for. The fact that he uh, brought Ridley Scott in, uh, and they hadn't worked together, despite the fact that they had known each other for a very long time uh, from the days in commercials when they were doing commercials together. Uh, I, uh, you know, I think that that was the perfect choice for a person to tell this story. A really smart filmmaker, somebody who who uh, knows how to put a film together, can handle stuff that isn't quite necessarily as patriotic, who can really focus on uh, you know, making things work and telling a story that really isn't focused on a protagonist trying to achieve a goal. This is really kind of an ensemble film of this group of soldiers as they are trying to you know, get through this mission that has been... Uh, has had some setbacks. And I, I think it's a great team 
to make that. I, I absolutely agree. And I, I don't know if this has if this had any impact on the production of the film, but uh, it is a truly international production team, right? Uh, the, that uh, Bruckheimer brought in Ridley Scott, a Brit, to direct this film and, and craft this film uh, that, uh, you know, many members of the cast are, you know, not... American, you know, playing American soldiers, they are not Americans. Uh, I think that the you you get a sensibility here that that it is, um, you know, it's a it's a film production that's aware of the weight on its shoulders to tell the story right and to do justice to the people who died, and um, and and died in service. and And I I got that feeling. I, I think powerfully. Yeah, it really is um, exactly that sort of thing where you get this sense. I mean, they had soldiers who fought there working with them to make sure things were done correctly. Um, listening to the commentary of the soldiers, some of the soldiers who fought there, um, watching the film and talking about it. I mean, it's really powerful hearing them. I mean, despite some issues that they point out about how, you know, this was this way, the film went, you know, we went left, the film went right, that sort of thing. Um, on the whole, they're really positive about, you know, this is telling the story. This is honoring these soldiers and the situation that they were in. And it's telling it in a way that that is very respectful. And I think that's a, a hard thing to do in this day and age, especially as the world, uh, at least particularly in the U.S., seems to be becoming so much more divisive the way that um, that social media is really pulling people apart um, because people are so focused on just their one side of things, you know? Yeah. And 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 here you have this story that doesn't take sides. It just tells this story the way that it really happened. It doesn't say it's anti-war. It doesn't say it's pro-war. It you know and and people end up pulling all these things. It doesn't say, hey, we're patriotic. We're waving our flag. It it's not just you know this this film depicting all this violence and horror of war. It really is kind of just showing things. And and then people are pulling all this stuff out. And you just read reviews. You read people talking about it. Some people are saying it's incredibly racist. Some people say you know this is how it was. This is just factual. There's nothing racist about it. And I find that incredibly interesting. And and when you can make a film like that that focuses on so many things that just were, it really, it, it, it highlights a lot of these things that, it, you know, it, it opens it up for discussion, I think. Yeah, I do too. Well, and, you know, direct policy change, right? When you think about what a film, just shining a light that a film is able to do on a particular military political action, uh, that it is able to actually impact global policy. I think that's really fascinating. And some of it, uh, you know, as a result of, of how they, you know, used or didn't use or misused the Somali people. They didn't, they didn't use the Somali people in the film, uh, right? I mean, that's the source of some controversy. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a, a Somali um, justice advocacy center in California that boycotted the film because of the way it depicted the Somali people. Um, there, you know, they were trying to get people to not go see it, despite the fact that in Somalia there was a, you know, bootlegged copies that were playing to sold out houses. <laughs> Just one of those funny things where I, I, people look at it in different ways in different parts of the world. But there were definitely people that were upset that, you know, it was filmed in Morocco and they used uh, non-Somali people to play the Somalis. And some people were really up in arms about that. It's just one of those things. People are going to find things to get upset about. And this is the nature of this whole series, right? I mean, this yeah. is, you know, truth versus fiction. What was your sense of the portrayal of the, the Somali, you know, side? I mean, how did you feel? What was your emotional connection at the end of the film? 
I, I think that the film portrays it really well, where you have this sense of, of these this this group of people in Mogadishu who are really ready to they they are not they don't like Americans and they're ready to basically kill them and and do whatever they can to protect their territory. Uh, men, women, children, anyone who will grab a gun will do it. But I think the film also shows how it really is kind of this one pocket. Uh, as the troops finally get out of this pocket controlled by ID uh, into a safe zone, you have these kids, you know, running down the street and cheering and you have, uh, you know, business people watching and, and just people living their everyday lives as these troops are kind of trying to, you know, finish this last bit of the what they call the Mogadishu mile as they get to the Pakistan stadium. Um, I find that uh, such a strange world, but that's how it was. And and. Uh, I think that's the sense that I got is, you know, we were there to uh, to intervene in this in this genocide. You know, you know these these people in Somalia were killing people and uh, you know stealing food and leading to mass starvation. It was just a terrible, terrible situation where hundreds of thousands of people were dying. And uh, we went in to try to intervene. It didn't, you know, it didn't really work because Ideed's people, you know, his his gang of thugs uh, was just so intent on ruling. I'll thank you not to use the words gang of thugs in this context. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, we have our own context yes. for that. Uh, yes, his, his, uh, his gang. We can, we can stick with militia. His militia, uh, they, uh, you know, he wanted to rule. And, and so he, he did everything he could, fought tooth and nail to keep us out. And uh, we left. And, uh, you know, the, the, because of this situation, uh, Clinton pulled out of, of uh, Somalia and Mogadishu. And things went back to the way they were. And it went back to starvation. It went back to all the horrors that had been going on there. And then because of that, we didn't intervene in Rwanda and there was a genocide there. We, when Bosnia happened, we didn't get involved on the ground only by air. And some people say, you know, this is really led to September 11th and, and kind of how things, um, you know, flowed the way that the world started seeing us and the way that some of these terrorist organizations saw us and how to get at us. I, you know, I, I went off on a very long tangent. You know, you asked me how, what no. I thought of the, how the Somali people were portrayed, but I think it's, I think it was realistic, I guess. I think what you're describing here is the way the situation impacted global policy. And I think the film reflects that. And, uh, and, and I think that's important that we, that we lay out. For me, I think the film, it, it had the same impact for me that City of God did, you know, where you're looking at this uh, representation of a real place and of the suffering that's happening in a real place. And I, I think when I watch the film in that light, not just like a movie, this isn't Red Dawn, this isn't the latest Rambo movie. Where, where there is just a punishing amount of death uh, at the hands of you know Americans, um, this is uh, this is a story that at the end, good, bad, or indifferent, uh, Americans lost their lives and thousands of Somali lost their lives, and the impact of just the the loss of human life that is. Uh, that is displayed in this film is just heart wrenching, and it, and for me it it that final sequence when the helicopters come in and and uh, are you know the night uh, rescue 
is uh, is shocking and uh, so destructive uh, that you know watching it in the in light of this series, this this is real life Jack series, um, I I found much more uh, impactful for me personally, and I, I you know. I hope others. It's very difficult to watch when those uh, little birds come zipping down in the dark and just uh, rain down upon the rooftops, taking down everybody on them. I mean, it's horrifying. It's a a terrifying act of of really incredible modern technology against uh, a very kind of primitive uh, uh, culture. And it's it's just shocking how it all unfolds. And uh, at the same time, it's like, this is war and and we're stuck in it and now it's this it's become this situation where it's like the troops are going to do everything they can to get the Americans out of there and that's that was their mission and that's what they went in to do the fact that it led to this it, and it's just horrifying and the fact that so many people ended up dying whether American or Somali or uh, Malaysian or Pakistani. I mean, so many different people ended up dying. I and mean, it's just, it's really a horrifying thing. And I mean, like the quote at the beginning of the film that opens it, you know, uh, by Plato, um, only the dead have seen the end of war. I mean, that watching this film that time, that quote really stuck in my head, just how horrifyingly true it is and how difficult it is to ever really escape from it. The script was ultimately credited to Ken Nolan uh, based on the book by Mark Bowden, but there were a lot of hands in it. Yeah, after Bowden wrote the original draft, um, you know, Stephen Gagan came in to do a rewrite, and then Steve Zalian and Esna Sands rewrote uh, their work and uh, Ken Nolan's work. And uh, then Ken Nolan was brought on to the set to uh, do rewrites for the four months of production. And um, despite the fact that uh, Eric Roth came in to write the the final speeches that both Josh Hartnett and Eric Bana give. And then after all of that, uh, it was determined that Ken Nolan would get sole writing credit uh, per the WGA. So again, who knows how the quirky WGA works, but Ken Nolan did get sole screenwriting credit and an Oscar nomination out of this. We uh, we had the opportunity to uh, sit down and, and talk briefly to, to Mark Bowden, and uh, was very interested to hear kind of his process as the, you know, the author of the book and the journalist who, you know, wrote so many pieces for the film. Delphi Inquirer uh, to uh, about this issue over the course of, of years uh, to ultimately bring this story to light. And uh, we start off talking a little bit about his other work in cinema. Uh, interesting to to see what other stories of his uh, that he had told over the years uh, had been purchased and adapted. So uh, I start off uh, asking him about, uh, I don't know, you probably saw this, this movie, right? The Joey Coyle story? I haven't. You haven't? Well, I haven't. You now you do now you do, and I ask Mark about uh, his experience uh, leading up to this film here. Uh, I mean, I met the uh, John Cusack and a couple of the other cast members when they came to Philadelphia and showed them around a little bit, um, and they invited me to come out to the set one day when they were shooting. But beyond that, uh, they weren't interested. Did you have aspirations to to work in film at all, uh, you know, prior to or subsequent to that? I never did. Uh, You know, I was a newspaper reporter. I did have aspirations to write the kind of books that I now write. Um, But beyond that, um, you know, other than loving film, I had never imagined myself uh, involved in in, uh, screenwriting. So... 
you're doing this reporting on Idid and the battle in Mogadishu, and the event itself takes place in 93. Uh, your book is published in 99. What was the process like for you moving this from an act of journalism into an act of filmmaking? Did you have a sense that this was destined to be a film as you're doing the initial work? No, it never occurred to me. Um, and it's particularly because it was a very complex story with hundreds of characters, unlike the Joey Coyle story, which was a fairly simple and almost uh, uh, classic uh, you know, storyline. Uh, this was a story about a battle. And frankly, there had not been that many films about battles. I wasn't, I didn't have any sense that there was strong interest in in the subject matter in Hollywood. And uh, I was just startled when um, Jerry Bruckheimer bought it. I had, however, based on the experience that I'd had with Finders Keepers, I saw how much money they paid screenwriters uh, to do drafts and then throw them away and hire other screenwriters. And so I said to my agent, look, the next time we sell a story of mine, if it ever happens again, let's put in that I get to do the first draft the first uh, try at an adaptation. And and I thought that the worst thing that could happen would be that they would pay me a lot of money and throw it away. Uh, and the best thing that could happen would be that I might actually have some influence over the way the story was uh, adapted. So it, you got to tell the story about that because you you did, you you wrote the initial draft before it was handed off to Ken Nolan. Uh, what, was, uh, what was that process like for you? Well, I can tell you that uh, I went out to, to, to meet Jerry after he bought the rights and I'm in his office out in uh, Santa Monica. And um, he asked me how many screenplays I'd written before. And I said, none. <laughs> and I could see the blood like drain out of his face. Uh, but he was great about it. He, he gave me the most useful thing that I had. I mean, I had all the standard, you know, books about how to write screenplays and whatnot. Uh, but what Jerry gave me were three different drafts of the movie Armageddon, which was admittedly not a great film, but I would say a very professionally written script. And you could see from one version to the next how much better that script got. And I think being able to see that, I went into writing my first screenplay with a better understanding of what made a, a polished screenplay versus one that was sort of, you know, a first draft. And and I found that to be um, a really useful uh Lesson, And I'll say this about Jerry as well. I mean, when I met him, he told me that he wanted me to be involved in every aspect of making the movie. And he wanted to make a film that was really different than any film he'd ever made before, in that he wanted it to have an almost documentary feel. He wanted it to accurately reflect the real event. And I remember leaving his office and thinking, yeah, right. That's, that's what they tell the journalist from Philadelphia who flies in. But Jerry was true to his word from beginning to end. That, uh, that was actually, you're leading right into my, one of my, 
personally biggest questions uh, for you. You know, Ridley Scott film with Jerry Bruckheimer attached. I had a hard time researching this thing without finding myself sort of standing in your shoes saying, how do I not get worried that this is going to be over-dramatized, right? I mean, Jerry <laughs> Bruckheimer is not, I, I mean, he's got a couple of biopics and true stories, but he's not really known for it. Um, yeah. You know, how do you how do you rationalize that with the incredibly impactful story that you've told here? Well, here's how I rationalized it, Pete. I figured uh, even if I really don't like the movie, as long as they call it Black Hawk Down, it's going to sell like five million copies of my book. Uh, so where's the downside? You know, they're paying me. Uh, they're going to it's like the best two hour commercial for a book ever made. It, and it doesn't even have to be good for it to be for it to work for me. But on the other hand, I also had a hand right from the beginning in adapting it. So, you know, I, I didn't have strong belief that I would end up playing as big a role as Jerry said that I would. But um, I was prepared to, uh, to go through with it and, and like it or not. How, so how big a role did you end up playing over the course of the production? Well, a lot. I mean, I, I wouldn't, I mean, clearly Ridley and Ken Nolan and, uh, um, you know, the people like Jerry, Mike Stinson and Chad Ullman, I mean, they're the filmmakers. And uh, I will say, though, that I did act as the um, corrective to flights of fantasy that might take place. And they treated me that way. I mean, even right up until, right up when the movie was released, I was traveling all over the world with Jerry and Ridley in a private jet, not because they loved me as their buddy, but because when they would sit down and do interviews with the press about the movie and they would ask questions about, well, did this really happen? And why did this happen? And why did you change this or whatever? They would turn to me and, and, I, and I'm the one who really knew this story inside and out. So that that's the big our big angle on these things is, you know, in the process of assessing any film as a cultural mirror of reality, you know, we sort of have to pull apart, you know, where it parts from the road of, of actual events. And I, I know that, as you've already said, there were, there were a lot of real figures that were condensed and consolidated into a, a much more reasonable, although still arguably quite large cast. Uh, I know there's some controversy around the involvement of Somali advisors and, or lack thereof and Somali actors lack thereof in making the film. Uh, but as the seed of what the film has become here now, you know, so many years later, what's your impression of it as a vehicle for the story that you told? Like, where does it succeed in your eyes and, and where are the major holes? Well, it largely succeeds, I think, because it captures the experience of the American soldiers who were involved in that battle. And I think that um, is really the thrust of the book I wrote as well. I think that, you know, you know, where it doesn't succeed is precisely where film parts ways from prose. I mean, a book, a 600 page book, or I don't know how many pages was it, 400, 500 page book, yeah. covers a tremendous amount of ground, uh, covers a great deal of complexity and context and, and, uh, you know, story development and nuance. Uh, the book, my book explores the Somali, uh, role in the battle, uh, in depth. I went to Somalia to report on it, uh, worked very hard on understanding the Somali point of view. So I think if you want a well-rounded, real account of what happened, the book is the thing for you. But the film, I mean, a film is like a short story. Uh, you have to be um, remarkably focused 
in making a two hour, and this was, I think, about a two hour and 12 minute film. So you really have to choose quite deliberately what you're going to, uh, where are you going to put that lens? You know, and I think it was a perfectly legitimate decision to focus primarily on the story of the American soldiers and, and what happened to them. Uh, you know, and I, I remember, you know, when <laughs> the first thing that Mike Stenson and Chad Oman and I did when, before I wrote the script was we sat down and drew up a list. We decided just as an exercise, uh, what are the scenes in the book that absolutely must be in the film? And we ended up with like two yellow legal pad sized pages of paper full of scenes and realized, you know, there was no way that we could encompass that much. Uh, and then later, you know, as we got down to uh, making hard decisions about, you know, uh, about the script and what it would contain and what it wouldn't, one of the things that I expressed was, you know, we really need to do more to bring out the Somali uh, side of this story. Frankly, it's one of the things that I'm proudest of in the book. And Jerry and Ridley, you know, said, well, you know, we, it's just really hard. I mean, the, I think, and I remember telling to Jerry in, in my innocence, you know, well, you know, why don't we make it a three hour movie? I mean, Steven Spielberg makes three hour movies and they laugh and they said, and Jerry said, Mark, he said, if we make a three hour movie, he said, the movie theaters can only show it like once or twice a day. We're going to spend more than a hundred million dollars to make this movie, and we intend to make a profit. So, if we make a three-hour movie, we cut our potential profit in half before we even get out the gate. It's just a non-starter, and I never really understood, you know, why uh, films were kept to like a two-hour frame, and that's because they can show it four times, five times a day in in a, in a theater. You're, oh, oh, Mark, you're so sweet. <laughs> That's that. I could just imagine that conversation. Oh, no, you know, they're just <laughs> oh, Mark. shaking their heads. Yeah. And, you know, if you, you really do get an object lesson in uh, the practicalities of filmmaking. Uh, when you sit with Ridley and his team, and he has this German guy, I don't know his last name, his name is Bruno. And Bruno would um, tell Ridley off the top of his head um, how much a scene would cost. You know, we, we'd be sitting around discussing, you know, the, a sequence of scenes and, and Ridley would uh, say, well, what do you think, Bruno? And Bruno would do a quick calculation. He'd say, well, you know, we got three helicopters. We got like 500 extras. We got, you know, and it's about, you know, he said, we need eight cameras, you know, and he throw out, you know, that's going to be like a $200,000 scene. And, you know, so these guys were so sophisticated uh, in what they were doing that I realized fairly early on that my role was somewhat limited and uh and uh and I had so much fun watching them at work uh, and frankly was so pleased with how um genuinely concerned they were to be accurate and not just be accurate but to accurately reflect the book that I had written so I think within the limitations of a 2 hour and 12 minute film I can't imagine anyone doing a better job of adapting the book that I wrote. When's the last time you watched it? Oh, it's been years. Yeah. It's been years. I mean, I literally have seen it 200 times. Sure, uh, by then, right. You know, even when we um, were traveling and promoting it, we would um, we would do a little introduction. This is, you know, the big premieres in Madrid and Rome and Paris and London. You know, we'd get up on stage and, 
introduce the film and then we would all go out for a really nice dinner and we would come back, you know, just as the film was winding up because, I mean, after a while you're reciting it in your sleep. Uh, I actually sat down and reread my book like uh, two or three years ago for the first time since I wrote it. And I thought it was pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) That's nice. Nice that that holds up for you. (laughs) What, you know, practical question. What you, you mentioned that you, you aspirationally sort of imagined yourself writing the kinds of books that, that you ended up writing. How do you find going through the experience of making the film has influenced your work today? Not much. Really? Uh, Yeah. And because I don't really think, um, in cinematic terms when I write, I know I've been accused of that, but that's just because, you know, Hollywood buys up the rights to the stories that I write. They don't actually, yeah. as you may have noticed, ever make the movies. Although they did do a pretty good job, the Narcos series of adapting the film Pablo. We yeah, Pablo. A minute of credit for it, by the way. But anyway, it sold, it's selling my book like hotcakes, and I'm not seriously concerned. Yeah. Hello, gift horse. But, but yeah. you know, I think having said that, I always have been, um, I think, influenced by film in my storytelling. And that's just who I am. I mean, I grew up, I've probably seen 10 films for every book I've read, uh, as is probably true of most of us. And uh, you can't help but be influenced by uh, the the economical visual way uh, that uh, film, how filmmakers tell stories. And so with some stories more than others, I think, it really influences me. The difference is if, if, if I'm writing a book where my voice or the voice of the narrator is really important, it's less influenced by film. Then it's more influenced, frankly, by Tom Wolfe or, or uh, uh, Norman Mailer or writers who, who I think write with a very powerful and sometimes funny and distinctive voice. But if it's a, it's a pure piece of storytelling, what I would call pure narrative, that kind of writing for me is very cinematic. And I definitely envision the story in terms of scenes. It's interesting that you would bring up Tom Wolfe and Norman Mailer, two guys who I would classify as a similar professional arc to your own. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I think so. Except, you know, Tom Wolfe and Norman Mailer were writing fiction. Yeah. Uh, and I haven't really, uh, other than the screenplays I've written, I haven't wandered off into, into fiction yeah. at this point. So, and I doubt I will. I mean, I think my my strengths are reporting as well as as writing, and uh, at this point in my life, I should probably stick with it. Well, don't worry. You'll probably be played by Tom Hanks in your movie about your life, so <laughs> stick with that. You can hang your hat on that. Mark Bowden, thank you so much for your time today. You're a gentleman and a scholar. I sure appreciate you lending your voice to this show. You're welcome. Thank you. He's a good egg, that Mark Bowden. I'm, I'm glad that we had the opportunity to sit down and talk to him. Uh, there were some interesting uh, differences between reality and fiction, what they chose to fictionalize, um, you know, starting with just the daily presence uh, of the military over the city, yes? Yeah, people really weren't that surprised that the Blackhawks would be flying over the city. So you wouldn't have people calling, you know, calling their leaders saying, oh, they're coming, they're coming. It happened all the time, so it was really no surprise to see see these guys. Um, obviously, this is a story of hundreds of people, and they had to condense it down to 30-some-odd uh, actors to really kind of tell it. So there's definitely some condensing there in the time frame. You know, it was like about an 18-hour story or so, and here it's condensed to a two-hour film. So they had to really condense stuff. But uh, And a lot of it just goes to location, 
to uh, just the way that they needed to craft the story. I mean, the first helicopter, when it crashes, it crashes in a really tight alley. And uh, and here they had to find a way to. Well, I think Ridley Scott actually found the courtyard where he saw it. He's like, this is where the helicopter is going to crash. And and I think it was Ken Nolan who says, oh, but it crashes in an alley. And he's like, not in my film. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, it's uh, it ended up uh, exactly where it did. Well, it certainly it gives him it, it certainly gives him much more flexibility in terms of where to put the camera and where to put the different, uh, you know, uh, uh cooperating bodies of rescuers and and you know it, it there is a lot of filmmaking opportunity that comes with that courtyard that you don't get in an alley an alley is a very tight space yeah. so having it in a big open courtyard definitely definitely helped him in the case of both helicopters uh the, it, there is also a regular presence of you know rpgs in this particular in the uncondensed reality of this universe here we only have a couple of them actually shot at the helicopters yeah, but uh, realistically, he said, uh, one of the military uh, people said that there were probably hundreds of RPGs that had been shot at them and that the people shooting them really were just terrible shots. Um, but because they were shooting so many of them, they really uh, had the odds in their favor. And so with all of the hundreds that they shot, they were bound to hit a couple things. And so they did end up hitting a couple of Blackhawks, unfortunately. Um, so he said that normally there would be you know, maybe a dozen or so RPGs that would get shot. But on this particular day, for whatever reason, there were just hundreds they just said it was just they just were all over the place i can only imagine how frightening that is not just as a military person but just as somebody who happens to be living there to have these rpgs getting shot all the time yeah right oh my goodness and and you know as a pilot yeah uh, and and there was a little bit of that i think they did a good job of of demonstrating the the sort of uh, anxiety that comes with being a pilot i think that that uh, uh that ended up coming across to me which was great uh, another thing to point out is that uh, Malaysia, uh, the folks of Malaysia were not very happy that they were left out of the film when it got condensed. Uh, it just was left with the Pakistanis. I don't even believe Malaysia was mentioned, or if they were, it was uh, just a very quick mention. But um, when the force came in at the end to help, uh, the film made it seem like it was the Pakistanis um, and just the Pakistanis. But the Malaysians were there too, and one of the Malaysians did lose their lives, and uh, Malaysia was not very happy to have been left out of that. I think it's actually, uh, I don't know, the difference between reality and fiction. Uh, I'm not sure how fair it is to to talk about final speeches in this sort of segue, but I'm I'm left to wonder, do soldiers sit around and talk to each other like that? Uh, I would imagine not, but when <laughs> Eric Roth is writing your lines, um, I guess it's uh, it's worth saying of them because uh, I, you know, they were great speeches. I really enjoyed them. Um, I didn't have as much a problem with the way the film ended as you. Um, I thought they were really uh, strong, powerful speeches. I thought it was uh, a good way, fitting way to end the film. I mean, they had needed to come with some way to kind of tie things up, and I thought it did it well. Not to mention having the uh, letter of the fallen soldier, which I thought was uh, pretty powerful and uh, painful to hear as we uh, wrapped things up. I do agree with that. I I think the the letter was a nice touch, but the the final Eric Bana speech is the one that that really hit me. That I I. I feel like his character had already established itself as the guy who didn't need to say anything. Like we could have gotten everything from his final speech uh, with him, you know, as he's you know strapping on his gear and going out again. Like I just didn't need to hear it. So I I don't know. I I feel like it does it it puts too fine a point on something that these guys you know, it's it, it's their job. It's their it's their banner. 
Well, and I guess it all boils down to I mean, all of this really focuses on, you know, what are the controversies uh, when you're adapting a story and the inaccuracies, where is the line? And it's a, it's a tricky thing trying to figure out um, how to dance on that line. In this particular case, I think the thing that sells the film for me is the fact that the soldiers who were there actually really stand by the film and they say this is um, a very fair representation of how things are. And they know that there's a difference between, you know, on the spectrum of things, you've got a documentary. Granted, a documentary can still be very one-sided, but you have a documentary which theoretically is just telling it like it was. And then you have kind of a Hollywood film. There's a big spectrum of kind of that. And, and Pearl Harbor would be kind of on that far spectrum of that. Yeah. And I think these soldiers really felt that the team of, of storytellers making this film did everything they could to keep it as far away from that... Uh, line of the Hollywood um, story as possible and as much uh, closer to the documentary line as they could. And so uh, for me, I find that whatever inaccuracies there may be here, I feel like they did a really fair job of it. And um, I'm okay with, with the film as it is. I am too. And, and uh, a large part of that is because I'm so comfortable with Ridley Scott. Here, here. I think he is, uh, uh, generally, he's a director that gives me what I need, uh, uh, what I need to see on screen, uh, and he tends to um, uh, align with my interests in action and violence, and uh, in this film, I don't feel like he ever um, crossed that line uh, in terms of actually portraying the, um, you know, the, the action and the escape from the city. Um, if, if anything, I, I can say, I think they undersold the fact that the mission was ultimately a success. And I think that's, you know, we talked about that's, that's kind of one of the controversies that we sort of forget because there's so much drama around the actual escape. Uh, but, um, but ultimately I'm really pleased with his performance here as a director. Well, and so much drama and we didn't, haven't even mentioned this, but so much drama because the first time many Americans heard about this was because they saw on the news the two dead Americans uh, being dragged through the streets. I mean, just horrifying news footage. And people had no idea that we were even there. And I think um, the fact that Ridley had very smartly dealt with that, I think that uh, he told the story very respectfully, like we've said. Um, and was, uh, you know, he's, he's a filmmaker who knows how to um, uh, be delicate when he needs to. And um, I, I think that he was able to, uh, you know, just kind of step back and avoid all of that sort of the controversy, so to speak, and just focus on, I'm going to tell the story exactly how it happened, or as far as like best they could in the script, and let the story speak for itself. And he's a smart director who I think is comfortable doing that and and doesn't feel like he has to, um, you know, put his, uh, you know, a, a very specific message in it, uh, even if even if you could read it to be having a message. But I mean, I think that he very smartly just kind of tells it like it is. I think so, too. And I, I just realized I need to say out loud that all of these things, these compliments I share at Ridley Scott, uh, I exclude Exodus, Gods and Kings. <laughs> Which I haven't even seen that yet, so I'm going to have to watch that one. <laughs> you don't. One of these days, I'll you have don't, to suffer through it. You don't have it. to. <laughs> well, he's on my list of directors of filmographies I'm going to have to complete, so I'll have to watch it at some point. Well, there are only 36 right now. Two of them are not uh, actually. One of them is a couple of them are TV movies, so you can get off the. You know, you can skip those. Yes, uh, but. Uh, 
yeah, no, there's a, yeah, it's a tough, tough time with Exodus, Gods and Kings. I had a tough time with that. Mm. Sorry, Ridley. Anyhow, can we talk first shot, last shot? Let's do it. Uh, the first shot, if you don't mind, sir. Yes, we see uh, we see sand, a beautifully beautiful blue toned sand, and the camera pans over to a Somali who is uh, just finishing up wrapping the dead body of someone presumably important to him. And the last shot, uh, we are inside the belly of an aircraft, and we are looking out of the back end as the giant bay door is lifting up from the ground, and we watch the the light over the coffins, the caskets that are in transport uh, as the door closes uh, and gets ready for takeoff. Wow. Uh, this is, it's one of those that I think uh, is such a perfectly fitting first shot, last shot, that until we started talking about first shot, last shot, I never noticed. Yeah, same here. And then paying attention and looking at them both, I'm like, this is why Ridley Scott makes movies, yep. because he knows how to put a film together. This is a perfect pairing of a first shot and last shot. There's so much between these two shots. It's just perfect. Brilliant. Yeah. When you watch just those two together, you realize that this this whole thing is just uh, as an exercise in death. And look at what it has wrought. You know, we went through. We we start here. We start at death, and we go through all this trouble, and we end with with death. I think the only open question, the only thing that's open for interpretation for me is is whether you feel like the death uh, was honored death. And uh, it, what is lovely about the first shot last shot pairing is is both of these. Uh, visually are uh, sequences of honored death, right? I get the feeling, and though I'm not, um, you know, aware of the sort of ritual around the death sequence we have in the beginning, the wrapping of the veil, it feels very ceremonial to me. It feels like a, like a, a, a death of honor, like a, it's preparing for some sort of a ceremony that is honorable. honorable. Well, yeah, that that was my sense too. Because then the next shot is that you see that body now sitting up, like they've they've propped the body up yeah. in in a position that seems prominent in some way. Yeah, and then the the end, obviously, um, you know, and I I should say it, it, it most military deaths are deaths of honor uh, in this in this context, and so that is very much the feeling that we get in the belly of the plane that these are all caskets of the honored dead, and so I think it is left up to the viewer in many respects. In in it's left up to the viewer to decide. You know, do you agree or disagree with that worldview? Uh, but certainly gives you a lot to chew on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, can we the cast? feels a, a little bit impenetrable, a list to just talk through. There are so many people in here. So many people, and because of that, uh, it's it's hard to pinpoint just a few to talk about. I mean, there's just so many people. I think the, the you know a key thing that we re- really have not mentioned at all on any of our shows is uh, who did the casting. And Bonnie Timmerman um, was the casting director the, for this film. And uh, you know, I think she deserves a lot of kudos to bringing a pretty incredible cast together here of faces that we recognize and faces that in 2001 we may not have recognized, but now we certainly recognize truly uh, and and to note that she is she is an, one of those exceptional casting directors i mean the work that she has done uh you know in her career of uh you know almost 80 films 
um, includes films that we love very much. Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Um, uh, Carly, Heat. Heat, right, Heat. Well, and then she gets into the uh, the Armageddon, Insider, Blue Moon, Coyote Ugly, Pearl Harbor, Spy Game, Black Hawk Down, uh, and uh, Public Enemies. Uh, of course, you know, Black Hat's on the list, so... <laughs> the casting may have been great for that movie. We'll never know because it turned out to be what it was. So, but yeah, you know, this is largely group effort, and it because it really doesn't have a central pr- protagonist, so to speak. Despite the fact that the filmmakers certainly brought several of the characters to the forefront as kind of our surrogates, um, but they did whittle the down whittle down the number of men involved from, like I said, around a hundred key figures or so to about thirty nine, making a number of composite characters, changing names as needed, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the cast, like I said, consists of tons and tons of familiar faces and some unfamiliar. Um, we'll talk about a couple of them, but just a, a short list of people involved. Let me just ramble them off. Uh, Josh Hartnett, Ewan McGregor, Tom Sizemore, Eric Bana, William Fickner, Ewan Bremner, Sam Shepard, Gabrielle Cassius, Kim Coates, Hugh Dancy, Ron Eldard, Ian Griffith, Thomas Geary, Charles Hoffheimer, Danny Hawk, Jason Isaacs, Zelko Ivanik, Glenn Morsauer, Jeremy Piven, Brendan Sexton III, Johnny Strong, Richard Tyson, Brian Van Holt, Nikolai Koster-Waldau, Stephen Ford, Ian Virgo, Tom Hardy, Gregory Sporletter, Carmine Giovinazzo, Chris Beatum, Tack Fitzgerald, Matthew Marsden, Orlando Bloom, Kent Linville, Enrique Murciano, Michael Roof, George Harris, Razak Adadi, Triva Etienne, Adbi Bashir Mohamed Hersey, Pavel Vokun, Dan Woods, Ty Burrell, Boyd Kessner, and Jason Hildebrandt. It's an it is an amazing cast. It is a giant cast, and it is, uh, I think, true to form, an incredibly ensemble cast. I think everybody in here performed absolutely to their strengths and uh, and delivered fantastic, honorable performances. Yeah, and I mean, there's just there's so much uh, from so many different people. It's almost uh, you know, it's uh, you know, we could talk about it could be a whole hour conversation just kind of going through the cast and really talking about each of them. Uh, anybody, any one actor, if there was one actor that you had to single out for their performance in this film, uh, who would it be? I, I'm going to single out one person, and it's not because of her performance, but it is because uh, Giannina Faccio Scott uh, was Ridley's girlfriend at the time and now wife. And uh, it looks like they had met on Gladiator. And she was uh, she was um, Russell Crowe's wife back in Italy. And um, she had been doing bit parts in all of his movies since Gladiator. And she is here in this movie. She's kind of representing the stereotypical uh, wife coming home to an empty house, just missing the call from her husband uh, who's or her boyfriend or whatever it is, uh, back uh, ready to go into battle. Um, that's a very stereotypical shot. I'm always kind of surprised when I see it that uh, Ridley Scott would put it in here. And then I found out that it was his girlfriend. I'm like, oh, that's probably... <laughs> Why that shot is in here. He wanted to find a part for his girlfriend. Even Ridley Scott is not immune to nepotism. <laughs> Even Ridley. <laughs> uh, let's talk a little bit about getting it made. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, I, I, I'm really glad, like I mentioned, Simon West is the one who originally wanted to do this, but uh, he saw the Lara Croft Tomb Raider movie and said, hey, I'm going to do that instead. And I think we can all be grateful that he did. 
And uh, yeah, so, uh, um, but you know, it's interesting hearing uh, Ridley Scott and Jerry Bruckheimer talk about getting this film made and how difficult it was. Um, obviously, Bruckheimer is somebody who's worked with the military a lot, uh, but even with all of his connections to uh, the government in order to get military um, cooperation on productions, they still were a month into production before they even had found out if they could actually use the Blackhawks or not. There was so much back and forth about it. Um, and, and it was just a huge concern. And they were actually ready to fly in some Hueys from Germany that they were going to have to paint black and make look the part. And luckily, you know, right at the last minute, because of Bruckheimer and his persistence, they were able to actually get these things. And, you know, kudos to Jerry Bruckheimer for doing that. It's one of those things. I mean, we may, you know, say what we will about Jerry Bruckheimer and the types of films that he might make. But he is a tried and true filmmaking professional who knows how to make a movie, knows how to cut the deals to make things happen. And this is a perfect example of him doing so. Well, yeah, I mean, you uh, cutting the deals, exactly. This is one of the things, not just a filmmaking professional, but boy, does this guy know how to produce movies. Right. I mean, well, yeah. in, in terms of supporting the, the production, uh, that that is a, a, a unique and special role. And when he is, you know, this is not just about finding money. And um, that's the feeling I get about Jerry Bruckheimer that, you know, again, the choices he makes in terms of the films that he makes, entertaining huge blockbusters. And, uh, um, you know, on the they make me go brain dead scale. They vary pretty widely, but I'm always entertained. Yeah, here, here. Production design, and uh, shall we just talk about product, the, the overall uh, uh, look and design of the film? Yeah, I mean, I think that's it's great. I mean, both cinematography, production design, the locations in Morocco, uh, hair, makeup, wardrobe, um, all of that stuff, you know, all of the people involved, whether it's Slavomir Itziak shooting it, Arthur Max with production design, uh, they all uh, did their due diligence, uh, you know, they're all working at the top of their game and uh, are definitely making a Ridley Scott film look like a Ridley Scott film. I found myself a little bit disappointed that they weren't more frivolous with the um, the the helicopter scenes. There were a couple of sequences where you get this, you saw the formation of the Blackhawks, you know what I mean? Uh, like you, you, you could see them fly in over the water or over the city in formation, and they looked so good. And it made me think of Vittorio Storaro and Apocalypse Now, and just how beautiful uh, those, you know, those Coppola helicopter shots are. And of course, in in Apocalypse Now, they're part of the iconic kind of uh, the drama of the scene because there is the you know, there are the speakers and the music, and so they they linger on those longer in Apocalypse Now. But I found myself really wanting them. There is something so satisfying about seeing helicopters flying in that formation when they when they take off for example when they leave the base and they they all raise about three feet off the ground and pivot uh 90 degrees you know to stay in formation i was oh i was in it that was great that was beautiful just beautiful the um you know the the uh, the the trouble they went to to get the locations to show the helicopters flying the way they did. I mean it's a great celebration of helicopters I could have used more of it that's all I'm saying <laughs> well hey we love our helicopters and uh, yeah when you get those helicopters racing down the uh, you know in the in between buildings down the streets of uh, you know the the Moroccan location posing as Mogadishu I mean that got me pretty excited when those uh, little birds drop the troops off the first time yeah uh, and you get that helicopter landing just like feet in front of you I mean that's just 
intense and powerful and brilliant and hearing everybody talk about how loud it was. I can only imagine how uh, much adrenaline these actors had when they were uh, making some of these scenes. I mean, they said you didn't even have to act. It's just, you know, you start and, you know, going into effects, I guess you're going through these, the motions of a scene and all of a sudden explosions start going off all around you and squibs start exploding all around you. Like you're really under attack and you start shooting and everything. They said, it's just, you're reacting, you're running because you feel like you're actually under attack. And I can only imagine, um, how much work the effects team did. Neil Neil Corbold as the special effects supervisor, really leading the charge um, to make it feel like a real war zone. Well, the yeah, uh, the the trouble that they had, you know, talking about the just the the location challenges of Morocco, this incredibly dusty place, and dropping these helicopters in that created massive plumes of of dust that they had to try to to mitigate in some way. Then uh, having to wet the dust so that they could actually shoot through, and then add the dust back in post is just <laughs> bananas to me. But it ended up looking so good. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the the visual effects team at the mill, um, which is uh, Ridley Scott's uh, effects house, uh, he works. He I think is uh, part owner of that company. They did an amazing job with the effects in this film, and uh, it's it's uh, between the actual effects going on on the production um, and all of the effects added in afterward. Whether it's the helicopter crashing, I mean, those are powerful and amazing, and I and I know that they use some some practical like helicopter shells and kind of plowed them into the ground yeah but the way that they paired that with the visual effects i mean it's stunning it looks like real helicopters crashing i mean they do a really astonishing job yeah yeah i was particularly amazed in in the demonstration of taking the helicopter shell on wires dropping it onto the fountain in the main courtyard and then going back in post and taking it uh as it's on the wires and erasing it and recreating it in CG in order to make it spin, and then adding the rotors, right? Or the the actual blades. All the blades are in post. That was uh, a crushing amount of work. And the most interesting sort of editorial comment from the guys who did the work on the helicopters was just to hear them talk about how difficult it is to make a helicopter look like it's flying like a helicopter. That that ends up being a really challenging thing to do because of the way the weight is distributed underneath a helicopter. It's deceiving. When you just see a helicopter fly, it looks totally normal. When you try to recreate that, uh, it, it actually is highly counterintuitive. Uh, and I found that that entire experience of watching them try to create this iconic thing, had they gotten it wrong, it it would have failed the entire story, right? If you at any point had questioned the helicopter. And I can only imagine trying to digitally design a helicopter and then having to figure in all of the different aspects that are affecting a helicopter, like the wind velocity mm-hmm. and, and how, how it's cutting through the air and how you know, a pocket in the air is going to push this this way, which counteracts this going this way and all of that sort of stuff. I mean, I can only imagine how complex that is. It's like getting into that kind of level of visual effects. You almost have to then also become an expert in engineering and uh, just, uh, you know, in physics. I yeah, mean, it's, physics, it's fluid dynamics. Uh, yeah, yeah crazy. Uh, it's amazing. It is amazing. Yeah. So this was it, it was a substantial amount of work, a deceivingly substantial amount of work, given how how beautifully uh, the effects end up working in the film. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think that we can't, uh, you know, move forward without also just acknowledging the amount of uh, uh, technical prowess that the technical advisors brought to the film. Not only did these actors actually train at boot camps and everything, but I mean, you know, they had military on set, making sure they were doing everything right. Uh, Colonel Thomas Matthews, uh, Colonel Lee Van Arsdale, Harry Humphreys and Major Tom McCollum were all there uh, helping make sure that everything worked well. Also, some of them actually performed. One of the helicopter pilots was uh, one of the actual um, uh, people who were, was there to be a technical advisor. And not to mention that they had actual troops there. Um, these rangers were there. And when they do, like when they drop from the rope, the, those shots, the wide shots, those are all real troops dropping down on the ropes. Um, it's such a, a, a tricky thing that they obviously didn't want the actors doing that. Um, and because of that, it looks really good. <laughs> it looks really good. It does. <laughs> I wonder if technical advisor Major Tom, uh, if he ever needed to contact <laughs> contact ground control. Do you think he needed to contact ground control? You know, I bet you're the first person <laughs> who has said that. <laughs> oh man, I'm in stitches. <laughs> I'm sure you are. Sure oh, you are. he probably hates his job. Just <laughs> hates it. I don't want the promotion. Please, I don't want. Can we just wait until I can skip major? Right. <laughs> just please let me skip major. Oh, lieutenant so Tom, I I want to be a lieutenant <laughs> or a general. <laughs> Oh, man, I was not made for the military. That's one of the things I learned from this movie. Uh, Post-production, huh? (laughs) Yeah, right. The post was brilliant on this. I mean, the editing, Pietro Scalia, the sound team did an amazing job of mixing the sound. I mean, it's just stunning the amount of um, effects that they added, but it sounds brilliant. And uh, then, of course, Hans Zimmer and his fantastic music. Yeah. I think he did an amazing uh, job. You know, Hans Zimmer is one of those composers who... Um, when he's really in it, he can do some amazing stuff. And when he's not really in it, um, he really does sound like he's just, uh, you know, uh, doing it just to get the check. And it, he can definitely go back and forth um, quite easily. But this is definitely one where he really feels like he's really in it. And there's just he does this brilliant blend of kind of that African sounding music um that uh, just really fits for kind of the the setting of the story mixed with kind of an orchestral sound that's almost like, you know, the Battle of Somalia versus the U.S. Uh, troops here. And he just he really uh, created some beautiful and haunting melodies here. And, uh, you know, I mean, this is Hans Zimmer, I think, at the top of his game. I do, too. Uh, I really enjoyed this score. And it is a, a listenable score. I mean, you can put this on and enjoy it and, and, not, uh, and, and not find it terribly assaulting. I think it's really quite lovely, um, in spite of the, of the action that it's covering in many cases. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this for, uh, film did uh, pretty well in awards season, didn't it? Yeah, you know, they they uh, released this, uh, they pushed to release it at the end of 2001, and it did garner four Oscar nominations. It won for Best Film Editing for Pietro Scalia, Best Sound, Michael Minkler, Myron Nettinga, and Chris Monroe. And then it was nominated for Best Director. Ridley Scott has yet to ever win on any of his nominations. This time he lost to Ron Howard for A Beautiful Mind. And uh, the cinematography was nominated as well, lost to The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. 
Um, it did get a few BAFTA nominations also for Best Cinematography, Best Editing, Best Sound. Lost all those. But the American Cinema of Editors did award Scalia the Best Edited Feature Film Dramatic. And the Motion Picture Sound Editors uh, gave the Golden Reel Award for Best Sound Editing Effects and Foley and Best Sound Editing Dialogue and ADR. So, uh, you know, they still ended up coming out uh, pretty well, I think, with uh, some hardware from award season. I think they did. I want to go back to Best Cinematography and... Um, and best director. What do you think? Was it where they justified losses? You know, A Beautiful Mind is an interesting film. I was not um, as taken by that film as a lot of people. Um, Ron Howard has certainly done some strong stuff. Apollo 13 is still probably the pick that I would have chosen for him. I would have given it to Ridley Scott over uh, over Ron Howard. Um, I probably would have picked Black Hawk Down too over A Beautiful Mind, but it wasn't even nominated as Best Picture. I, I think I would too. I have a feeling that it would have been if this was one of those years where they were nominating more than five films. As we move on, we we do uh, we did want to just uh, acknowledge as we acknowledge the cast, uh, this fantastic cast honoring this incredible event. We did want to acknowledge the the soldiers. Uh, who served and lost their lives. Yeah, there were 18 who lost their lives. There was a, a 19th who um, lost his life a few days later when I think a mortar round was shot at the um, um, at the base. Um, but uh, yeah, this is the list of soldiers who died there in Mogadishu. We have CWO Donovan Briley, Staff Sergeant Daniel Bush, Specialist James Cavico, Staff Sergeant William Cleveland, Staff Sergeant Thomas Field, Sergeant First Class Earl Fillmore, CWO Raymond Frank, Master Sergeant Gary Gordon, Sergeant Cornell Houston, Sergeant Casey Joyce, PFC Richard Kowalewski, PFC James Martin, Master Sergeant Tim Grizz Martin, Sergeant Dominique Pilla, Sergeant First Class Matt Ryerson, uh, he's the one who was killed two days later in the mortar attack, Sergeant Lorenzo Ruiz, Sergeant First Class Randy Shugart, Corporal Jamie Smith, CWO Cliff Elvis Wolcott. There was one Pakistani soldier who was killed. I could not find his name anywhere on the internet. And there was a Malaysian soldier who was killed, uh, Lance Corporal Matt Aznan Awang. Those were uh, just the people who were killed. Obviously, a lot of people were also injured, not to mention uh, the Somalis who were killed. Uh, There's a low estimate of 133 or 315, depending on what you read, up to high estimates of 1,500 to 2,000 Somalis killed. Um, not to mention the injured. So a lot of people, um, but certainly the uh, American soldiers and the Pakistani and Malaysian soldier, we definitely uh, wanted to recognize them here. Uh, It it wasn't until uh, late August, right, of 2013 that we finally got uh, the the last bits of helicopter back that were recoverable? One of them. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, you know, this is Mogadishu. They didn't really have any way to do much of anything with these two helicopters that were uh, left there. And so it wasn't until August of 2013 that uh, some people um, actually brought some of the parts back from Super 6-1, uh, which I believe was the first one to go down. Um, and you can actually go see it um, now. Um, uh, the mostly intact main rotor and parts of the nose section, they were extracted from the crash site, returned to the U.S. due to the efforts of David Snelson and Alicia Ryu. They're on display if you want to go see them at the Airborne and Special Operations Museum at Fort Bragg in Fayetteville, North Carolina. Uh, we hear how it did as in terms of award season, but how did it do where it really counts? Uh, this movie did well for itself. Uh, Black Hawk Down, like I said, it did have a limited release starting December 28th, 2001. 
making it eligible for the Oscars, and then it had a wider release in January. The movie had a $95 million production budget. I couldn't find any info for the prints and advertising, unfortunately, so that puts it at a budget in today's dollars of just over $129 million. Domestically, the movie made about $108.5 million and about $64.5 million internationally, making an adjusted total gross of just over $235 million. That puts uh, Ridley's war drama at 736,500 adjusted per finished minute. Certainly marks it down as a financial success for everyone involved. And ripe for a sequel. (laughs) Too soon? (laughs) Ouch. Andy, I think it's time. Let's rank it. Let's do it. Head on over to flickchart.com and uh, slash the next reel, and you're going to log in there, and you're going to look up this movie, Black Hawk Down. And then you're going to to gird your loins because this is uh, going to be a tough one to rank because you're going to want to rank it over everything because you're heart sick. That's the way it's gonna, you're going to play it. But you're going to have to make some hard decisions. Yeah, it's a tough film. Yeah. It's one of those where, you know, it's a... a top top film for me it's one of i think ridley's best films um but it's a hard watch yeah all right let's do it what's up first up we have black hawk down or hot fuzz black hawk down yeah you know how i feel about hot fuzz (laughs) i know i know i i do know but come on come on i i still have to say hot fuzz because Black Hawk Down is brilliant, but if it's choice sitting on a desert island, and I know Black Hawk Down is important, but I'm going to pick up Fuzz. <laughs> I know it's just terrible. Right I, out of the gate, I feel. I, I know. I feel. I don't know how I feel about this. I'm. I'm going to have to take you to the mat and just get it out of the way. All right, let's, let's do, do it. First one. Ready? One, one two, two, three. three paper. Rock. It happened. That was a just win right there. Probably. You, you, I did you a favor. I did you an absolute favor. Probably did. Thank you, Pete. Thank you for helping me Helping me uh, help myself. All right, next up, Black Hawk Down or Out of the Past? For me, I think it's going to be Black Hawk Down again. I probably would say Out of the Past, but... <laughs> But I feel like I'm going to say Black Hawk Down because I don't want to be reprimanded. (laughs) (laughs) Andy, sometimes shame can fuel us. Help us make good decisions. Oh, man. Black Hawk Down or Apocalypse Now? I'm going to say Apocalypse Now. You are? Yes. (laughs) Why? I think... um, As brilliant as Black Hawk Down is and as as strong a film as it is... um, Apocalypse Now, I think there's um, a really interesting psychology about all of that that goes into that film and and the mentality of of war. And I, I think they're both interesting war slash anti-war films, but there's something about Apocalypse Now that uh, also puts me in a um, in different mindset. And I don't know, maybe it's just when I discovered Apocalypse Now, but uh, it's the one that I would choose. Okay, I, I think... I'm going to make exactly the same argument. I want to say ditto to all of that. <laughs> and for that very reason, I pick uh, uh, I pick Black Hawk Down. At, because at the end of the day, as great as I think Apocalypse Now is, and I do think it's great, I am more entertained, filmo a filmo, I'm more entertained straight up by Black Hawk Down. I'm just more entertained. 
Well, that doesn't sway I, you at all. You're not more entertained by Black Hawk Down. It no, is generally I, a more energetic movie. It it moves more quickly. Well, it is, but I think by design. I don't think Apocalypse Now was meant to have, uh, you know, a level of Ridley Scott and Jerry Bruckheimer intensity. It wasn't the same sort of film. I would still say Apocalypse Now uh, because of just it, there's there's a poetry to that film that I feel um, draws me in more, and I feel more compelled to look at that one again. Again, not saying anything negative about Black Hawk Down. All right, we're doing it again. Okay, let's do it. One, two, two three, paper. paper. <laughs> One, One, two, two three. three. Paper. Paper. You cheated. <laughs> I did. <laughs> One, One, two, two three. Scissors. scissors. Oh, nuts. One, One two, two, three. Scissors. Jeez. Cut you. <laughs> that that <laughs> cut hurt. <laughs> All right. Black Hawk Down or Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid? Oh, man. I will say Black Hawk Down here. <laughs> Andy, oh, we're going to be reversed now, aren't we? I too will say Black Hawk Down. Oh, look at that! Mm-hmm. Black Hawk Down or Jaws? I'm going to say Jaws. I'll say Jaws. Black Hawk Down or Inception? I'm going to say Inception. I am too. Black Hawk Down or Raiders of the Lost Ark? I'm going to say Raiders say... of the Lost Ark. As will I. Black Hawk Down or All the President's Men? I will say All the President's Men. I will too. Uh, all right. Let's see. Uh, that's it. Wow. That, uh, jumped way up there. Number 17. That's, that's where it should be. In spite of your poor judgment, I am glad (laughs) I was here for you. Like I said, (laughs) you're probably right. You're probably making better choices for me than I can make for myself. (laughs) Can you imagine where this would have ended up if you had won on Hot Fuzz? Hot Fuzz, Andy. I, I know. I know. I could, I mean, there is a case to be made for Apocalypse Now. I give you that. But hot fuzz. <laughs> I'm not saying it's a better film, but I'm saying it certainly is what I'm going to put on first. <laughs> <laughs> totally fair. I get Sometimes it. Sometimes that's what it comes down to. I get we it. know. This. Uh, we do. We know this. I, you know, I wonder, we're just uh, you and me. Uh, no, Flick Chart can't hear us right now. Where would you put Black Hawk Down versus Alien? I'd put Alien first. Me too. In in the context of Ridley Scott, I think that um, Alien and Blade Runner are my two top. And then it may be Black Hawk Down. Uh, I know Thelma and Louise is way up there. I know it's not for you, but it is not for even, me. Not even close. <laughs> and Gladiator. Like, those would probably be my top five. And Black Hawk Down, I feel like, would be number three. Yeah, for me, it's it definitely includes The Martian and um, American Gangster is up there, but Alien and Blade Runner, and then then it's a toss up. Hannibal, uh, Gladiator, or you know, Black Hawk Down. They're all kind of in there. They're all in tie. The rest are tied at number three. You can have a Hannibal. I'll take uh, Thelma and Louise. Okay, Hannibal would go. be in, in my Thelma spot. For you. <laughs> really? Oh, that makes oh, me so geez. sad. Oh jeez. Oh jeez. Oh my goodness. Oh. <laughs> anyway. Oh, wow. I did not know I unleashed a hater. All right. So I assume this is a five-star for you on Letterboxd. This is absolutely a five-star. Hands Uh, down. 
and not just a five star, but like I said, this is a very important film, and I do feel like everybody should see it at least once just to uh, get a sense of what uh, these soldiers go through or went through in this particular case. I do too. Terrific film. Uh, where do we go from here? We're wrapping up. This is real life, Jack. Yeah, this is just a little bitty series, just three films. Um, we're going to jump into some horse racing with a little horse named Seabiscuit. And Seabiscuit's race across Somalia. <laughs> amazing story. If you haven't heard it, it's amazing. Uh, I can't be... wait to talk about the, uh, the <laughs> what was real and what was uh, fictionalized <laughs> that story. Remember when, when Seabiscuit went down in Somalia? You know, in addition to our, our, our Seabiscuit extravaganza, uh, international extravaganza, we do have one other show. We've got a trailer rewind that has come back around uh, with uh, Odd Thomas. Uh, JJ and Steve got together and, and uh, did a little ditty on Odd Thomas. You, did you see Odd Thomas, Andy? I still haven't. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's your shame. That is your private shame. That is now horribly public. <laughs> Thank you for outing me. You're welcome. You must see that movie, uh, and then you can listen to the show, obviously. Uh, it is, I can't wait to hear it. I haven't even heard their show yet. They have just delivered it unto me as we are recording this episode, and so uh, I, I look forward to hearing what they thought, because I like this movie quite a bit. Uh, I don't know that it would be Black Hawk Down, Filmo a Filmo, but uh, I'm just saying. But would it be Hot Fuzz? <laughs> I'm gonna let you. I'm gonna wait and see. I'm gonna. I want you to tell me what I would say. This is okay. out there, okay? You tell me what I would say. Hot fuzz, or odd Thomas. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> Suspense. Great. I gotta go to bed. All right. Well, I'm going to keep an eye on you from the skies above. As you may expect, Andy, Amazon giveth. As Amazon always doeth. Ooh, movie like this. Uh, yeah, people are people have opinions. I've got oh, uh, yes, they do. I've got one from uh, uh, from July twelfth, two thousand two. Says it's a one star, only a piece of the picture. Black Hawk Down is a good snapshot of what it's like to be in light infantry and in what the army euphemistically refers to as operations other than war. Very graphic in depicting what can happen when little things go wrong in these sorts of operations. However, as a holistic story of what happened to the men of Task Force Ranger that Sunday night in Mogadishu, it's sadly incomplete. Little effort is made in setting up the stage as to why the Rangers were in Somalia, and it completely ignores the aftermath of the fight, even to the point of leaving you hanging and wondering if CW3 Durant ever got away from the Somalians. As a shoot-em-up war movie, Black Hawk Down is hard to beat. If you're looking for the story of what happened in Somalia and the lessons that can be learned from that sad experience, skip the movie and get Bowden's book. Now, I actually find that I agree with that review, and I would absolutely still rate it as a five star. Well, and apparently they weren't paying attention to because the text at the end of the screen tells you that yes. Durant was released 11 days later. It does. It's it's right there. You know, it's it's not part of this particular story, but that story does 
conclude. It is in finished. The yeah, of it the is film, finished. Yeah. But ultimately, you you can't argue just what we talked about. It is a compressed film, and the choices that they made to compress the film to tell it on screen in two and a half hours, I think, are going to frustrate people. And I absolutely understand this reviewer's perspective. This was not a not a review to make fun of. It's absolutely justified, and and I understand. And I still think it as as he says, it's hard to beat. Well, see if you agree with this one. This is a one star by Aussie guy who says, boring. I disagree. (laughs) Did not (laughs) like this movie. Found it to be boring. Maybe I was not in a good movie type of frame. Maybe I was just not interested. I usually love my war top action adventure movies, but this one does not seem to go well with me. You can't win them all and no one is perfect. Smile. Maybe I will give it another look at some stage and who knows? Maybe it will grow on me. I like that at least Aussie guy has a positive ending to this one star review. <laughs> Maybe I wasn't in a good movie type of mood. Maybe I was <laughs> sedated. Maybe I was plum unconscious. <laughs> Maybe I was watching Gilmore Girls. <laughs> oh, thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today.